Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Eddie Michel to discuss his new book, The White House in White Africa, Presidential Policy Toward Rhodesia During the UDI Era. Dr. Michel discusses the complicated course presidents had to chart regarding the rogue state and the ways that different presidents chose to handle Rhodesia. Dr. Michel, thank you for coming to the New Books Network. Uh, Please tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a research associate at the University of Pretoria in uh, South Africa. Um, my primary focus is um, in the field of White House policy toward Rhodesia, present-day Zimbabwe, and apartheid-era South Africa. Um, my broader areas of interest include U.S. foreign policy, U.S. history, and the Cold War in Southern Africa. Where did you do your doctorate, just out of curiosity? I did my doctorate at the University of Birmingham in the U.K., and my, this book, The White House and White Africa, we're discussing today, that originated from work, um, my primary research I conducted for my doctorate. Okay, very good. So briefly, um, because I think many listeners might not be familiar with, with what the situation was in Rhodesia circa 1965, describe, describe the situation for listeners who might be unfamiliar with the subject. On November the 11th, 1965, the white minority Rhodesian government signed a unilateral declaration of independence known as the UDI, from the United Kingdom. Rhodesia was a self-governing colony in Southern Africa, which desired full independence from London, and following exhaustive negotiations, had finally opted to take the matter into its own hands. In a statement immediately following the declaration, Rhodesian Prime Minister Ian Smith asserted that, in the lives of most nations, there comes a moment when a stand has to be made for principle, whatever the consequences. From the Rhodesian perspective, a number of factors led to the decision to defy London. The majority of white Rhodesians um, considered decolonization and majority rule in Africa as an erroneous policy, symbolic of the decay of the once proud British Empire. On a pragmatic note, the fact that many newly emerging African states had descended into one-party dictatorships or spiraled into vicious bloodletting and ethnic conflict further hardened the resolve of the white community to stand their ground against the tide of white nationalism. The populist Rhodesian Front government was also vehemently anti-communist and held to a Manichaean worldview in which the stirrings of African nationalism within their country stemmed from communist subversion as opposed to genuine political grievances. In the view of white Rhodesia, communism was insidiously spreading throughout Africa and London was doing little to prevent it. In their mindset, it became incumbent on the Rhodesians themselves to have the determination and fortitude to say, so far and no further. However, it is also clear that the UDI represented the determination of the white community to retain the power and privilege in an independent Rhodesia. The Rhodesians, having built an economically viable modern nation, benefited for the most part from a privileged existence, paying little tax, and enjoying a high quality of life. Indeed, the capital of Salisbury boasted more swimming pools than any U.S. city of a comparable size. In November 1965, just days before the UDI, Time magazine commented that few communities in the world 
can match the sun-drenched affluence that Rhodesia's haughty settlers have achieved for themselves. It was also increasingly obvious that the white Rhodesians had no intention of giving it away. Smith himself privately stated, the white man is the master of Rhodesia, he has built it and intends to keep it. Globally, the Rhodesian decision was almost universally condemned, including by the United States. For nearly, well, oh, just over 14 years, the duration of the UDI era, Rhodesia remained a global pariah and an internationally unrecognized nation state. Now, specifically, what's the reaction in the United States towards the UDI? Interestingly, Rhodesia enjoyed considerable support among the U.S. public, notably among white Americans and conservatives. Many Americans empathized with Ian Smith based on the perception of a mutual desire to throw off the yoke of British colonial rule. The fact that the UDI Declaration clearly mirrored, some would say mimicked, the U.S. Declaration of Independence served to further reinforce this narrative. Future U.S. Senator, Senator Jesse Helms while working as a television commentator, observed on November the 17th, 1965, that it was a good thing there was no United Nations at a time when Patrick Henry and some other rebellious souls decided to declare the independence of a new nation back in 1776. Indeed, the vehement anti-communism of the Rhodesians, whether genuinely a false propaganda disseminated to garner support, also resonated across America. In the Vietnam era, a time when traditional U.S. allies in Europe, including the United Kingdom, were disappointingly uncooperative, many conservatives were angered by U.S. hostility toward a Western-oriented anti-communist stronghold in Southern Africa. The Rhodesian offer of tangible help in Vietnam in early 1966 further reinforced the perception of Salisbury as an ally in the global fight against communism. Proponents of Salisbury also highlighted the shared frontier culture of both nations and applauded what they saw as Rhodesian achievements in building a viable economy and Western democracy in the heart of a wild and primitive continent. These accomplishments were viewed as a Rhodesian version of Manifest Destiny. Former Secretary of State Dean Acheson, an unofficial yet influential advisor to President Nixon, viewed Salisbury as a beacon of European light in a dark continent. On the questions of racial equality and political representation, it was pointed out that Salisbury should not be criticized for the imperfections in its political system, given that it took Washington itself nearly 200 years to be equal rights to all U.S. citizens. Segregationists, especially in the Deep South, also held similar racialist positions to the Rhodesian government and commented that the black Rhodesians were simply not civilized enough to take on the responsibility of governing a modern democratic nation. It is also important to note that the Rhodesian UDI occurred at a key point in U.S. political history. By the mid-1960s, the domestic conservative movement was transitioning from a primarily sunbelt social movement into a national political driving force. In 1964, only one year before the Rhodesian UDI, Barry Goldwater, a U.S. senator from Arizona and uncompromising conservative, triumphed in the Republican presidential primaries. Despite his defeat in the national election, his victory in the primaries was indicative of the increasing power of social conservatism. Importantly, while many conservatives opposed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act and sought to limit the pace of racial change at the national level, such figures shifted away from the previously embraced overtly racist language and policies. 
It is quite clear that Salisbury strove to align its actions in the framework of the transitioning conservative movement within the United States. Rhodesia, through its propaganda outlet, the Rhodesian Information Office, or RIO, in Washington, published periodicals which avoided overtly racist language or inferences and portrayed Rhodesia as a harmonious multiracial bedrock of Western civilization in Africa that needed time to evolve and remedy the imbalances within its society. On a geopolitical level, the U.S. also retained close strategic and economic ties with de facto Rhodesian allies Portugal and South Africa. Both Lisbon and Pretoria were vehemently anti-communist, and the U.S. benefited from close military ties with both nations. Portugal was a key NATO ally, while South Africa monitored Soviet activities in the South Atlantic, as well as providing facilities for U.S. aircraft and naval vessels and hosting an important NASA tracking station near Johannesburg. Washington, as I noted, also had substantial economic ties with Lisbon and Pretoria. Rhodesia itself also possessed a range of strategic minerals, uh, notably chrome, that were important to the U.S. on economic and strategic grounds. Uh, prior to UDI, Salisbury had been a major supplier of metallurgical chrome ore, and the chromium was a vital component in the manufacture of numerous essential products, including stainless steel, electric power generation, chemical manufacturing, and in the space program. However, in contrast, many liberals in the U.S. and civil rights groups advocated a very different approach towards Salisbury. It was pointed out that the Rhodesian UDI was not undertaken to give a suppressed indigenous population the right to govern their own affairs, and instead represented the desire of an entrenched white minority to remain in political control of the nation beyond the end of formal colonial rule. Political figures including Congressman Donald M. Fraser and Charles Diggs, as well as Senator Gail McGee, advocated for a policy of hostility toward Rhodesia. Many political and religious groupings, including the Catholic Association for International Peace, National Council of Churches, and the U.S. Youth Council, all denounced the Rhodesian action as an attempt to perpetuate white supremacy and supported a strong stance against Salisbury. African-American civil rights leaders, including Dr. Martin Luther King and later Andrew Young, drew a direct parallel between the refusal of the Smith regime to accept majority rule and the struggle against Jim Crow laws in the southern states. In an interview in 1977, Young, then U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., stated, I know Ian Smith. I learned about such men at my mother's knee. In terms of geopolitical outlook, it was highlighted by some liberals and many Cold Warriors that the continued existence of white minority rule in southern Africa provided Moscow, Peking, and later Havana, due in part to their lack of ties to Salisbury or Pretoria, an opportunity to align themselves as the true allies of black African aspirations to the detriment of Western interests. In the words of LBJ's National Security Council staffer Robert Comer, the communists were able to pose as the apostles of decolonization. Moreover, the longer the minority governments remained in power, the greater the opportunities for communist sway over the leadership of the liberation groups. It was also highlighted, um, especially by Africanists in the State Department, the need to protect U.S. interests in the newly independent black African states. Africa's huge landmass and airspace had great strategic importance, and its nations possessed a large free world percentage of minerals critical to American interests, as well as lucrative markets for export. So you've 
I think very neatly led us to my next question, the Johnson administration. What is the position of the Johnson administration towards Rhodesia? Well, during the torturous negotiations that preceded UDI, the Johnson administration had repeatedly assured London of the backing of Washington and had publicly scolded Rhodesia for its insistence on minority rule. As UDI became increasingly likely, Johnson sent a personal message to Smith, urging him to avoid a course which would inevitably break the strong ties of friendship and understanding which have bound our countries together in war and peace. Immediately following UDI, Secretary of State Dean Rusk declared that the White House deplored the Rhodesian action and the United States would not recognize the rebel regime. The position developed by the LBJ administration, however, represented a balancing act between the various global and domestic dynamics pushing for a punitive response to the UDI and the factors limiting the level of coercion that Washington could or wanted to exert over Salisbury. On a personal level, as president, Johnson opposed white supremacy, whether it existed in the Mississippi Delta or in the belt of Southern Africa. On an electoral note, the president was also aware of the increasing African-American interest in achieving racial justice in Southern Africa. Globally, the Johnson administration was disturbed by the growth of communist interest in and effect on African affairs. The early 60s witnessed a startling increase in communist economic and military aid to the newly independent black nations and liberation movements. As I noted earlier, the presence of the white redoubt, so-called white redoubt in Southern Africa, provided a further opportunity for communist meddling. The White House was also more than aware that the extent of U.S. influence in independent black Africa in terms of both diplomatic support and economic interest was intrinsically linked to the stance that Washington took on the issue of white minority rule. Balanced against this, however, LBJ was also cognizant of the need to avoid extreme actions which would damage relations with Portugal and South Africa, both of which nations were routinely violating bilateral embargoes on UN sanctions and continuing to openly trade with Rhodesia. Domestically, presidential correspondence interestingly reveals widespread public backing for Salisbury and criticism of the US government's hostility toward a friendly nation. In Congress, while a number of liberal figures such as Senator Ted Kennedy urged LBJ to take tough measures against Salisbury, there also existed a pro-Rhodesia lobby on Capitol Hill. Given the support that Salisbury enjoyed on the public and in Congress, including among conservative Democrats, Johnson feared that any radical steps taken against Salisbury could actually stimulate greater domestic support for the increasingly influential conservative movement, which may turn into Republican votes down the road. The White House also fretted that a violent split along racial lines in Southern Africa could inflame ethnic tensions in the United States itself in the aftermath of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. In fact, in the spring of 1965, the meeting of the American Negro Leadership Conference on Africa to create a permanent black pressure group to influence U.S. foreign policy was viewed with alarm and concern by the administration. It was feared that the appearance of an ethnic lobby on Africa could lead to a segregated approach to foreign policy. This delicate balancing act was reflected in policy decisions. Following the UDI, the White House undertook a series of punitive measures, including a comprehensive arms embargo and bilateral sanctions that mirrored British actions. 
Washington also supported the imposition of selective UN sanctions in 1966 and further comprehensive sanctions in 1968. Significantly, the United States actually adhered to the UN sanctions. This was not the case with many Western allies, the USSR, and even a number of black African nations who continued to trade with Rhodesia. The White House, however, was not prepared to support more radical actions, including the use of Chapter 7 measures of the UN Charter against Salisbury, as this could potentially include the use of force. The administration feared that this could lead the Rhodesian crisis to spiral into a wider racial conflict with devastating consequences and also provoke domestic racial tensions threatening the progress made by the LBJ administration on civil rights and voting rights. While the White House expressed grave concerns over the actions of Lisbon and Pretoria, the administration also avoided more radical measures, including the proposed wider trade embargoes on South Africa and the Portuguese territories, or the use of force to ensure compliance with sanctions, as Washington wished to avoid precipitating an economic or military confrontation, which it saw as to the detriment of broader Western geopolitical interests. Now, the next question has to deal with the Nixon administration, and you might expect that because chronologically they follow. How does, how does the Nixon administration differ from LBJ, and how significant is that difference? The election of Richard Nixon led to a distinct shift toward closer relations with Rhodesia. Nixon and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger clearly empathized with Salisbury. For Nixon, the fact that the white Rhodesians had built a pro-Western democratic nation with a strong economy was impressive of itself. The fact that it had been achieved in a region which, in his view, was characterized by dictatorial, often Marxist-oriented leaders dependent on foreign aid packages and frequently troubled by violent unrest, meant that in the view of Nixon, Salisbury deserved U.S. respect, not hostility. Nixon also, um, in part influenced by racial prejudice, had little interest in black African liberation or indeed black Africa at all. Nixon repeatedly snubbed Zambian president Kenneth Kawanda during his visits to Washington, as well as emissaries from the Organization of African Unity. In the view of Kissinger, the former colonial nations of Africa deserve little respect because of their lack of political tradition, immature economies, and weak militaries. On one notable occasion in September 1971, during a private conversation with the president, when Kissinger referred to the African delegation accompanying Mauritanian President Mokhtar Olgada as savages, Nixon erupted in laughter. Closer ties with Salisbury also complemented the geopolitical aspects of Nixonian foreign relations. The Nixon Doctrine of 1969 advocated the pursuance of strategic interests through military and other aid to friendly governments. These governments could include unpalatable regimes, provided they had distinctly anti-communist credentials. By uh, 1970, the White House was also growing, uh, was growing concerned over access to chrome. U.S. adherence to UN sanctions had led to a growing dependence on chrome ore from the Soviet Union, which was criticized on, the, on both strategic and economic grounds especially as Soviet chrome was more expensive and of poorer quality. An irony of the situation not lost on Nixon was that Moscow covertly purchased high-quality Rhodesian chrome at low cost due to UN sanctions, 
then subsequently sold inferior quality Soviet chrome to American companies at inflated prices. In April 1969, Kissinger ordered a review of U.S. policy towards Southern Africa, which highlighted the important strategic and economic interest in the white control states. The White House was also urged by a number of departments, including defense and commerce, to move toward closer ties with Pretoria and Salisbury. On January the 28th, 1970, Nixon issued National Security Decision Memorandum, NSDM 38 which included a policy of closer ties with the white rural states of Southern Africa. In the words of Nixon, the United States must analyze where our national interest lies and not worry too much about other people's domestic policies. So in terms of significance, let's take the case of Chrome. This shift in policy meant that Nixon was quite prepared to openly defy both London and the United Nations. In August 1970, Nixon approved a hardship exemption allowing Union Carbide Corporation to import 150,000 tons of Rhodesian chrome ore. In November 1971, Nixon signed the Military Procurement Act into law. A controversial clause known as the Byrd Amendment allowed chrome imports from free world Rhodesia if the United States was importing chrome from the communist Soviet Union. While this was a congressional decision, as publicly highlighted by the White House, in private, Nixon told Kissinger, I am for the Byrd Amendment. We want to buy that chrome. Indeed, Nixon was so infuriated by UN criticism that he actually threatened to cut off financial support to that international organization. In contrast to the consternation in London and at the UN, the passage of the Byrd Amendment was celebrated by the Rhodesian government. The legislation provided much-needed foreign exchange and was a huge psychological boost to the embattled Smith regime. The White House was also satisfied with the abortive Hume-Smith Agreement of November 1971 between Salisbury and London over what the British termed a return to legality. Nixon offered no criticism of the fact that it preserved white power and was delighted as it would allow the United States to resume control over $56 million of investments allow the legal importation of chrome, and strategically provide overflight and landing rights. Nixon's only concern with the Hume-Smith Agreement was the negative geopolitical implications of a legal, but still pariah, white-controlled Rhodesia. Now, some argue that the Ford administration's foreign policy was just an extension of Nixon. After all, he still has Kissinger there, now as Secretary of State. Was this true? I would disagree with that argument. Ford, for both moral and geopolitical reasons, fundamentally changed the U.S. approach towards Salisbury. Jerry Ford was a man of integrity who, in my opinion, possessed a sense of fairness and justice that on a moral level opposed any form of racial discrimination as fundamentally unjust. Even as a young man in the 1930s, an era when Jim Crow still reigned supreme in the South, and African-Americans were subject to pervasive racism throughout the nation, Jerry Ford proved unafraid to take a stance for racial justice. This was demonstrated in 1934 by his refusal to play in a college football game when the opponent's Georgia Tech demanded that the sole African-American player and good friend of Ford's on the University of Michigan team be benched for the match. In 1946, Ford joined the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. 
It is important to remember just how radical this decision was in the racially charged atmosphere of the 1940s. Ford's decision, therefore, based on his ideological viewpoint and personal experiences witnessing racial discrimination, was a testament both to his morality and to his strength of character. Indeed, during his time in the Oval Office, Ford was entirely intolerant of the casual racism so prevalent in the Nixon administration. Within days of taking office, Ford organized a meeting with the Congressional Black Caucus. In the words of its chairman, Charles Rangel, the invitation was indicative of the seriousness of Ford to open his administration to the advice and counsel of those of us who represent people whose views and needs were ignored by the Nixon administration. Indeed, Nixon had adamantly refused to meet with the newly formed Black Caucus, leading to the group boycotting his 1971 State of the Union address. I also think that it's significant that the primary item at the agenda of the presidential meeting with the Black Caucus was U.S. foreign policy in Africa. I also think both publicly and privately, Ford made a commitment, Ford demonstrated his commitment to racial justice in, uh, regarding Sub-Saharan Africa. In March 1976, in Illinois, Ford stated regarding U.S. policy towards Salisbury, we have to be on the right side morally, and the right side morally is to be for majority rule. Public pronouncements were also mirrored by a documented private determination to do what was morally right, regardless of the domestic political consequences. While Henry Kissinger obviously remained a major influence on policy, the Ford administration adopted an entirely different position geopolitically than from the previous Nixon era. Following the collapse of Portuguese colonial rule in Angola and the failure of a covert CIA program in collusion with the South African military to stop the Cuban-backed Marxist-oriented MPLA from gaining power, the Ford administration feared the development of a similar situation in Rhodesia. It was believed that unless decisive action was taken to bring about a negotiated solution to uh, bring around major minor, uh, majority rule, then this would lead to a what? Then this, <clears throat> excuse me then there would be a wider racial war in the region, potentially bringing in South Africa and Cuba, and leading to the potential creation of a radicalized Marxist bloc in Southern Africa. Indeed, in the shifting viewpoint of Secretary of State Kissinger, the geopolitical reality was that unless the United States could force majority rule in Salisbury, then the door stayed open for further Cuban and, Co uh, Cuban and Soviet expansion in Southern Africa. For Kissinger, if the white Rhodesians needed to be the sacrificial lamb to prevent the spread of communism in the region, then he was quite happy to wield the knife. On April 27, 1976, in Lusaka, Zambia, Kissinger stated that the United States is wholly committed to help bring about a rapid, just, and African solution to the issue of Rhodesia. Over the following, over the following six months, he engaged in his famous shuttle diplomacy with London, Pretoria, and the frontline states. In September, under pressure from both Kissinger and South African Prime Minister John Forster, Smith agreed to what became known as the Five Points and publicly endorsed the principle of majority rule. While the Geneva Conference, the ensuing Geneva Conference, failed to bring the parties together, Kissinger's actions nevertheless initiated a process that culminated in an end to UDI. He had not only coerced Smith into publicly endorsing the principle of majority rule, 
but for the first time brought the power and prestige of the Rhodesian government, oh, sorry, the US government, into actively seeking a resolution to the Rhodesian problem. So Jimmy Carter is usually the one who gets a lot of credit for helping to resolve the UDI and bring about an independent Zimbabwe. What did the Carter administration do specifically? Well, the election of Jimmy Carter would prove to be a pivotal moment for Odisha as a new administration played a critical, perhaps even irreplaceable role in bringing an end to the UDI. Ian Smith himself termed it in his memoirs, the disaster of Carter. Uh, before I get into his specific actions, um, I would just like to frame his opposition to Rhodesia, which primarily stemmed from his deep, uh, Jimmy Carter's deeply held moral belief in the importance of democracy and human rights, shaped in part by his childhood in the Deep South. This commitment to human rights ran, ran through his administration, notably um, Secretary of State Cyrus Vance and U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Andrew Young, who both attached central importance to human rights when formulating foreign policy. In the view of the White House, the refusal of Salisbury to grant equal rights to all its citizens was a violation of the basic human rights of the Zimbabwean people. And even before taking office, Carter had determined he would not only seek to bring majority rule to Rhodesia, but actively use U.S. power to achieve this objective. Geopolitically, um, in the view of Carter and also National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski, the continuing conflict in Rhodesia created a volatile tinderbox in Africa, providing the fertile conditions for steadily, the steadily increasing Soviet and Cuban influence in the region. The Cuban military presence in Africa was a particular concern following Havana's successes in Ethiopia and Angola. In addition, as noted by Brzezinski, perceived U.S. indifference to communist involvement could lead to greater fear and intransigence on the part of the South Africans, both in, in terms of maintaining the apartheid state but also in pressuring Rhodesia to accept any deal. Um, electorally, the Carter White House was also swayed by the domestic factors of maintaining the increasingly important African-American vote. In the presidential election of 76, 1976, while Carter won every southern state except Virginia, the majority of white voters in those states had opted for Ford, and the Democratic victory had thus been achieved on the back of the black vote. So the White House was increasingly cognizant, also increasingly cognizant that the stance Washington took towards ending white minority rule in Africa was perceived as reflecting its own stance toward domestic racial concerns and could affect and could affect re-election in 1980. So, in terms of actions, Carter's early actions included Presidential Directive Five, which made the achievement of majority rule in Rhodesia a major foreign policy objective. Congress following heavy lobbying by the White House, also swiftly passed legislation which circumvented, it did not repeal, but it circumvented the Byrd Amendment, and the UN Security Council passed a British, British and US-sponsored resolution which expanded international sanctions against Rhodesia to include overseas offices such as the Rhodesian Information Office in Washington. On the broader diplomatic level, in partnership with the British, Washington pressured Rhodesia to accept the Anglo-American plan, which proposed an immediate transition to majority rule. British Foreign Secretary David Owen was particularly eager for U.S. help, stating in his memoirs, Africa needed American strength and American commitment. The White House refused to support the Rhodesian Internal Settlement, signed on March 3, 1978, which represented a compromise deal between Smith and the so-called moderate black leadership. 
the Carter administration, despite domestic pressure from conservatives, viewed the agreement as fundamentally unrepresentative of majority rule and did not think that U.S. recognition would end the conflict or prevent further communist involvement. Carter then rejected the subsequent Rhodesian offer to send official observers to the April 1979 elections which chose the government of national unity, or GNU. On June the 7th, 1979, again despite strong domestic pressure, Carter found negatively against recognition of what had become known as Zimbabwe-Rhodesia and the lifting of sanctions. CIA reports indicate that this decision by the White House not only ended Salisbury's hopes of gaining international recognition, but also damaged support for the GNU inside of Zimbabwe-Rhodesia itself. Carter's decision on the GNU was also an important factor in, uh, in shifting British thinking. Initially, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher had indicated a willingness to consider recognition. Following the White House decision, however, Thatcher informed Salisbury that all party participation was necessary for recognition and the removal of sanctions. I would suggest that Thatcher, um, an avowed advocate of the special relationship, was aware that United States support was vital for any viable settlement. At the subsequent Lancaster House conference, which eventually ended UDI, the White House played an important role in assisting the United Kingdom in attaining the final agreement. U.S. Ambassador in London, Kingman Brewster, maintained contact with all sides and insisted on the important condition that all parties be treated equally during the ceasefire. One notable U.S. contribution related to the controversial question of potential land redistribution and how it could be financed. The Patriotic Front, made up of ZANU and ZAPU, uh, vehemently rejected the idea that the majority rule government would be required to compensate white property owners for land that it believed had been stolen from the indigenous African population. The fact that Washington offered the possibility of aid to pay off the white landowners allowed the Patriotic Front to end the stalemate as opposed to merely backing down. Ambassador Brewster also assured the British that the United States would cooperate in a multi-donor development effort for Zimbabwe, subject to a successful settlement. Following the transitional period and all-party elections, Zimbabwe formally gained independence from Britain on April 18, 1980. In Washington, Carter immediately extended formal diplomatic recognition to Zimbabwe. The British were well aware of the significant contribution that the White House had made to the successful outcome of the Lancaster House Conference. At a state dinner in Washington, Prime Minister Thatcher offered her gratitude to Carter, observing that without his aid, the settlement may never have reached success. So using Rhodesia, what can we learn more broadly about U.S. foreign policy in this period? Examining, examining U.S. relations with Rhodesia through the lens of the Oval Office, provides us with a better grasp and awareness of the pressure points which guided foreign policy during the 1960s and 1970s. White House decision-making regarding Salisbury demonstrates the changing geopolitics of the Cold War, the shifting patterns of global power, the rise of human rights, domestic race relations, economic concerns, and the importance of strategic raw materials on foreign policy. These international and domestic dynamics often competed and jockeyed for supremacy, but at times intersected with each other to achieve mutually compatible goals. Furthermore, 
The various presidential administrations differed greatly in how they prioritized and sought to manage the confluence of these determinants. As part of the global periphery, Salisbury offered a great deal of flexibility to the successive administrations, and this is reflected in their differing approaches towards Rhodesia. Indeed, I would argue that the Rhodesian UDI and subsequent independence provided a range of arguments for the differing administrations to deploy, which reflected the set of core beliefs within each presidency of how to approach international politics. The, the micro case of Rhodesia, therefore, offers an intriguing insight of the fundamental values and priorities of the Johnson, Nixon, Ford, and Carter administrations. Finally, using Rhodesia as an illuminative lens also exposes the interaction between pragmatism and morality in formulating foreign policy during the UDI era, as well as the competing visions within Washington of what constituted a pragmatic or moral approach. So I always like to conclude any interview by asking, and this, I apologize if this is a sore subject. I know you've just finished this book, but um, what are you thinking of working on now? I'm moving on toward um, U.S. policy, toward apartheid-era South Africa. Um, I have a few articles which are currently um, out for peer review, so I'm hoping to have some publications within the next year. And, yeah, so I'm, I'm moving from the, uh, the case of Rhodesia, the 1965 to 1980, to a much broader topic, which I think will be equally fascinating um, in, regard, in terms of... Um, learning more about U.S. foreign policy in the early, mid, and towards the end of the Cold War. Fantastic. I look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Zell.